Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Join us as we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer questions to help people with kidney disease or a transplant live well. You might have heard about drugs called SGLT2 inhibitors that are used to treat kidney disease, but like many other kidney patients, you might not know if they're right for you. In this episode, we'll explain how SGLT2 inhibitors are different from other treatments for early stage kidney disease and discuss side effects, cost, and the ongoing research around this type of drugs. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Catherine Tuttle and patient Jane Demise. I'm Jane Demise, and I am a patient with stage four kidney disease and diabetes, and I'm very excited to have this conversation today with Dr. Tuttle. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Dr. Catherine Tuttle. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Washington, and I'm executive director for research at the Providence Healthcare System in Spokane, Washington. Um, My area of interest has been diabetes and kidney disease my entire career. And I'm excited to be here today to join you for this podcast, especially now because we really do have exciting therapies that truly are life-changing for patients with diabetes and kidney disease. So thanks for the opportunity to be here and to uh, chat with you today. So just jump right into it. So um, Dr. Tuttle, what are SGLT2 inhibitors and what are some of their benefits? Well, SGLT2 inhibitors were originally developed to treat hyperglycemia or high blood glucose uh, in people with type 2 diabetes. And they work by causing patients to lose more glucose in the urine. So they block uh, glucose reuptake in the tubules of the kidney so that they increase urine flow and uh, loss of glucose in the urine. But we discovered that far above and beyond their effects on glucose lowering, they have some remarkable effects to protect both the heart and the kidney from failure of those organs. So how does this differ from any other medications that have been out there? Well, these are the only medications that work by causing, again, if I can use the term glucosuria, glucose in the urine. And it turns out that when there is more glucose in the urine in people with diabetes, but actually now... We also know even in non-diabetic patients, it actually uh, ends up reducing pressure in the small blood vessels of the kidney. So in a sense, it controls the microvascular hypertension above and beyond the effect of blood pressure lowering with a blood pressure medication. There may be other beneficial effects, but we know this is a major effect. So in a sense, it's much better control of the hypertensive injury uh, that is common in diabetes and many other forms of kidney disease. Are SGLT2 inhibitors FDA approved for all kidney patients? In April of this year, the US FDA gave one agent in the class called dapagliflozin a breakthrough therapy status approval. And this really is monumental. We've never had a therapy for kidney disease that uh, achieved the high bar required by the FDA as a breakthrough therapy. These are therapies that the FDA prioritizes for approval because of substantial effects to uh, improve quality of life as well as survival. 
And actually, this drug is also the first drug ever approved not only to prevent kidney failure, but to also reduce risk of death, and in particular, death from cardiovascular disease. So it really is a remarkable time to have agents uh, like this. And, and actually, for any health condition and any therapy, it is very rare to reduce all-cause mortality. And the risk of all-cause death, death from anything, was reduced by one third by dapagliflozin. And that was true not only in patients with type two diabetes, but also in patients without diabetes, uh, at least those who have a form of kidney disease with protein or albumin in the urine. And I will call out that the effect on the heart is equally dramatic and primarily it's reduction in heart failure. At least part of it is because they're such effective diuretic agents that they control the excess volume, which strains the heart. But there are probably other effects on the heart as well that preserve heart function. So this is really a win for patients with diabetes and kidney disease, but other forms of kidney disease, because besides kidney failure, the risk of cardiovascular disease, particularly heart failure, is also very high and, in fact, is the most common cause of death. Wow, it's really exciting. And it's and it's Excellent news to my ears to hear about these improvements and these better drugs. That's great. So who are the best candidates to take an SGLT2 inhibitor? You know, that's a really interesting question. I'm going to first answer it from the nephrology perspective, but then I'm going to answer it from a broader diabetes perspective and heart uh, failure perspective. So with regard to kidney patients or people with kidney disease, we know that we can, based on the clinical trials, now use these agents to a GFR as low as 25 and arguably to a GFR as low as 20 if they also have heart failure uh, with preserved, what we call preserved ejection fraction. That is a heart that still has the capacity to function well when treated properly. That said, in the clinical trials, we did not stop these drugs if the GFR declined on treatment. So we could continue them to the point of dialysis or kidney transplantation. There are now other studies going on looking at more advanced CKD, but I would make the case that based on the most recent trials that have published within the past year, that we can use these in people with a GFR as low as 20 to 25 and still get the remarkable benefits I mentioned. Now, stepping back from people with CKD, what we clearly know from the cardiovascular trials is even in people without known kidney disease, they prevent kidney failure, they prevent progression to having kidney disease, they also prevent heart failure and atherosclerotic heart events. So to be honest with you, any person with type 2 diabetes who has a high cardiovascular risk also benefits. And certainly from a cardiovascular perspective, which is very important, but they're also less likely to get kidney disease to begin with, which is a good thing. And then if we step back even further to people with diabetes who might not even be identified as being particularly high risk for heart disease or kidney disease, what we know from so-called real world evidence, so that's people who got these agents for glucose lowering in clinical practice, and this is based on data from electronic health records, those patients have been much less likely to develop kidney or heart disease. So we really see that they're effective on the prevention side, as well as the treatment side uh, for heart and kidney complications and diabetes. Are there any side effects 
of SLGT? Any medicine is going to have a side effect. And side effects, in my mind, are really, if you will, off-target effects. There are other things that the medications do that we didn't intend for them to do. And some are good and some are bad. So why don't we talk about the side effects that worry people, but there are also some good side effects that I'll, I'll address too. So the main risks uh, are an increase in genital yeast infections in both men and women. And to be honest with you, it's because of the high glucose in the urine. And there actually have been studies that may seem very mundane, but that simple advice on hygiene, daily bathing and clean clothes reduces those risks by half. The risk of those infections is about three to 5%, but it goes down to less than 2% if we just take the time to give a little bit of simple advice about good hygiene. The other risk that we are particularly concerned about is something called ketoacidosis, even with normal glucose levels. Ketoacidosis in type one diabetes usually occurs in people with severely elevated blood glucose. It turns out that SGLT2s can cause ketoacidosis even with a normal glucose. Ketoacidosis is a buildup of ketone bodies or acids. This has to do with the way they change some aspects of uh, metabolism, particularly fat and liver metabolism. But again, with a good patient education and risk mitigation strategies, this risk is less than 1%. But basically it means even if you have type two diabetes and you take insulin, don't stop your insulin. We'll work with you to use an SGLT2 along with insulin to avoid hypoglycemia, but insulin is our best defense against ketoacidosis. And what we call sick day rules. There's a higher risk of ketoacidosis if a person gets an infection or let's say has an exacerbation of heart failure. So if you get sick, we recommend that patients stop those medications temporarily and then work with their healthcare professional about getting back on the medicine once they're, they're over whatever the episode is. So there, there are some others as well. I guess the only other one that I think maybe this audience would be interested in is, is volume depletion or becoming dehydrated, right? Because these increased urine flow. But as a nephrologist, you know, most of my patients are fighting the opposite problem, too much fluid. So these drugs are usually our friend and the same for heart failure. But there are some people who don't have volume overload. And that's where we need to work again carefully with the patients to warn them about an increase in urine output and, you know, any evidence of dehydration uh, so that we can uh, adjust their diuretics if needed. Now, some of the good side effects are that these agents, for example, lower serum potassium. So uh, in somebody with hyperkalemia, which is, if I can use that term, a high blood potassium, which is common in our kidney patients, the SGLT2s actually uh, tend to lower potassium, which can be a helpful thing, but they don't make it too low. The other thing that they do is they decrease the risk of acute kidney injuries. So like uh, acute kidney injury typically occurs when people are hospitalized for other complications, they actually reduce the chance of acute kidney injuries. And then, as I mentioned, they also protect the heart. So I would say that in balance, there are many more benefits and good side effects than bad side effects. And the side effects that could potentially cause harm are all things that we can uh, mitigate, especially if we work together with patients and educate them and teach them about self-management. Yeah, I was going to say that it's, it, it sounds crucial that you have a good connection with your physician and your nephrologist to make sure that anytime something seems a little off, 
that you're talking to your doctor so you can catch things early and to find out if it really is a side effect or just something that's happening and, and it has nothing to do with the drug. So again, patient advocacy, it's very important to, to talk to your doctor, especially if you're start, starting a new medication. Um, you said something about that having a diuretic effect. It says um, they can cause dehydration. Sorry. What are the pros and cons for using this with somebody who has a range from 25 to 30? You know, to be honest with you, even at that level of GFR, we've seen remarkable kidney protection. The stat, the statistic you'll see in the paper is called a hazard ratio, but you could think of that as a relative reduction in risk. It still comes in around 40% reduction in risk of progressing to um, kidney failure or a substantial uh, decline in GFR, like another 50% decline in GFR. So that means like if you have a GFR, of, let's say 26, there's a 40% lower chance that your GFR uh, is going to drop below 15 or you're going to need dialysis or, um, or kidney transplant. So even in advanced CKD, within the guidelines of the FDA label, we are trying to get people on these therapies. And then on top of it, I just have to say it also saves lives. So that really hits all the buttons, right? more likely to stay alive and among the living, less heart and less kidney failure. I don't think we could ask for more, frankly. No, I, I agree. And, and again, it's a conversation and, and you weigh the, the pros and the cons and make those decisions. But if I can control my kidney disease with diet and exercise, why do I need an SGLT2? Healthy lifestyle, physical activity, nutrition are really the cornerstone of good health care for diabetes, for kidney disease, for heart disease, really almost for any chronic condition. So uh, undoubtedly that is our foundation. Once patients do develop protein or albumin in the urine or low GFR, medications add benefit on top of healthy lifestyle. And so really the best treatment is a combination of both. And again, you've mentioned this, but really close partnerships with patients and I'm intentional when I use the term partnership. It really is a partnership in care. To your point, it's not just writing a prescription. It's taking into account patient preferences and priorities and then their individual you know, clinical characteristics. And, and that becomes, you know, on the medicine side, the art of medicine. And I think on the patient side, it becomes the part where, you know, it's individualized special care just for you. Um, you've kind of hit on some of the future research that's going on with these inhibitors, but is there any research being done on kidney transplant recipients using these drugs? Because of the you know, benefits we've observed, kidney transplant patients are very interested in what this might do, this type of treatment might do to preserve the life of a transplant. And we agree. And if we walk back to how the medicines work, there's every reason to believe that they would work on the non-immunologic or non-rejection side of keeping a transplant. And in fact, today, more people will lose a transplant from the other mechanisms that are not rejection. So this is a really uh, unmet medical need for the kidney transplant community. The challenge is to do a clinical trial in these patients because they do have unique characteristics that are different, right? They're on immune suppressing therapy. Um, so in addition to efficacy or how well the drug works for hearts, kidneys, and life-saving, we do need to look at the side effect profile, like the risk of 
of genital mycotic infections in this population, and they need to be very carefully managed and studied. Uh, and then we also need to understand, even though it all makes sense, whether or not the benefits are going to be comparable. So we need to do a trial. And there is a group, international group that I'm a part of, along with colleagues from Canada and Australia and Europe, who are trying to put together an international trial for kidney transplant recipients. Uh, the challenge is uh, really more around finding a sponsor for the trial. The pharma companies are not too interested, not because they don't care about transplant patients, but their patents are going to expire. And so, you know, once, once they get a drug on the market, it's uh, more difficult to get them to keep studying uh, additional populations, although they have been very supportive in terms of trying to help us find a way to obtain a drug supply at a reasonable cost, but we still have the cost of the trial. So uh, there are a number of discussions going on with federal agencies right now, like the NIH and comparable agencies in Canada and Australia. Uh, so I guess it's a long-winded way of saying we're trying to get organized, but it is more challenging because uh, we are going to have to self-organize the trial and it will take an international effort, I think, to bring together all the uh, potential funding sources that can make it happen. I'm curious, just for myself, is there any research being done with patients who are in dialysis and using these drugs? Uh, right now, the focus is on the transplant trial and uh, on a, actually a study for people with type 1 diabetes. I think there's interest in the dialysis population, uh, mainly from a heart failure standpoint, but I guess I'm involved in both those other efforts. And it's, I think it's as much as the professional community could lift to get a type one and a transplant study started, but would wholeheartedly support a dialysis study uh, if we could possibly manage it. Are there any other exciting medications similar to the SGLT2s that are out there now or in research? Yes, and that's the other really, you know, marvelous time we're in from the standpoint of kidney disease, if I can say so. In fact, I now call my presentations about diabetes and, and the kidney as kidney health, preserving kidney health, not treating kidney disease, because not only with the SGLT2, but with some of the other agents, I really do think we have a chance now to really focus on health rather than disease. We have phenarinone. Phenarinone was just approved July, I believe it was July 20th of this year by the US FDA to treat people with diabetes and chronic kidney disease to prevent the same outcomes as with SGLT2 inhibitors. When that trial was started, SGLT2 inhibitors were not yet recommended because those trials were going on. So the standard of care changed during the phenarinone trial, which was called Fidelio. And then there's a companion trial called Figaro, which was also a study of phenarinone, but people with earlier stage diabetic kidney disease, where they, the primary outcomes were outcomes related to heart disease. And that study was just presented on August 25th at the European Society of Cardiology and published in the New England Journal the same day, less than a month ago. And it has delivered two for the heart and kidney complications. So we now have phenarinone, and it turns out that the SGLT2 inhibitors were emerging during the trials. So they did report that about, I believe it was about 15% of the people on phenarinone got an SGLT2 inhibitor. And again, this is just what we call post hoc or looking a looking backward analysis because we didn't plan to do it. 
But with that disclaimer, we would call it, if you will, exploratory or hypothesis generating data, is that the combination of the two benefited patients. So we're moving to where the next trials you're going to see will be combination therapies. But the finerenone trial showed us that this drug, together with an SGLT2 inhibitor, provides benefit. Then the other big class are the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So these were also originally developed as glucose-lowering agents and studied in the same way as SGLT2 inhibitors for cardiovascular safety because the FDA mandated those trials to assure that we were giving drugs to people that, caught, that were not likely to increase risk of harm. And like the SGLT2 inhibitors, they actually knocked it out of the park, meaning not only were they safe, they actually reduced cardiovascular risks in people with type 2 diabetes, but different than SGLT2 inhibitors because they mainly reduce risk of what we call atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, so myocardial infarctions and strokes as opposed to heart failure. However, the main secondary outcomes were kidney outcomes. And across the board, we see very similar effects on the kidney, marked reduction in loss of GFR, and at least, again, in some of these post hoc or looking backward type of studies, reduced risk of kidney failure. This has now led to a trial of a GLP-1 receptor agonist called semaglutide in something called the FLOW trial. So far, this is only done in diabetes, but I imagine it will extend to non-diabetics as well particularly if the diabetes study is positive. That study, in spite of COVID-19, fully enrolled by the end of March of this year. And we expect it'll probably run another two years. It depends on how many events or how many cases of kidney failure happen. Those determine our ability to detect an effect of benefit. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists, even now, uh, I'll give a parallel recommendation that I did for SGLT2 inhibitors. In people with type 2 diabetes, um, even now, for people who have a propensity to, say, having myocardial infarction and stroke, they are now recommended as first-line therapy for cardiovascular protection above and beyond glucose control. Um, and for people who have advanced stage CKD, one of the advantages of these agents is that they're very effective glucose-lowering agents. And they give us options other than insulin, and they don't cause hypoglycemia. So even today, we can say in our patients with GFRs below 30, we can use them long after we have to stop metformin. And if we replace insulin with a long-acting GLP-1, first off, it's easier. It's just one shot a week with no dose adjustment. So the daily burden of living with diabetes is easier. There's less monitoring involved, for example. They don't cause hypoglycemia and they really do lower the glucose effectively. They also provide cardiovascular benefits, even in people with low GFR. And we're optimistic that they too will preserve GFR even in this population. But again, I have to qualify rem my remarks to say that until the flow trial completes, you know, we just have to say that it's under investigation for kidney protection, but all the arrows are pointing in the right direction. So I have to tell you, Dr. Tuttle, after talking with you, I actually approached my nephrologist and we had a strong conversation about these medications 
And we made a decision to put myself on a GLP-1 inhibitor. So even with a very low uh, GFR, my GFR is 13, we decided that for my sake and for science sake and, and just for experimenting, that it was worth it. And so I'm, I'm real excited to see how this goes. And um, I advocated for my husband, who is uh, stage three, to go on an SLGTP. Uh, and it's working fabulous. His, his glucose has not been as stable uh, as it is now on these drugs. So it's really, it's really remarkable. One thing though, and we, we have to face this, as this, these medications are pretty expensive. Um, what are patients, what are some of the things that patients could do uh, for paying and getting access to these drugs? So that is a really important issue, Jane, is, you know, cost can be a barrier to accessing these medications. I think the good news is that we are seeing a shift toward at least the out-of-pocket expense going down for patients, but it's these medications still, you know, in many cases, and again, it's going to vary depending on insurance coverage and what pharmacy a person uses but that said, we're probably looking at out-of-pocket, oftentimes several hundred dollars a month, on top of usually a lot of other medicines, too. So I think, you know, a couple things. One, from the perspective of the professional societies like in National Kidney Foundation, American Society of Nephrology, we are working with policymakers to really um, prioritize availability of these medications, at, at least through the federal insurance programs. But the truth is once, for example, Medicare covers something, often the commercial insurers will follow suit. So we do need to work on the policy level. The other thing is I would encourage patients to work with their pharmacists to also access some of the pharma provided patient assistance programs so that, that it, if, it's, if the cost is still too high, uh, it will help increase access to those medications. But, you know, this, this is a barrier that I think we need to work on everywhere from that individual level with the patient, their pharmacy, their pharmacist, all the way to the policy level. But my hope is, especially, I mentioned this earlier, we will see generics probably on the SGLT2s as early as two years from now and, and the same for the GLP1s. So I'm optimistic that they'll be more accessible to people. But I want to ask you a question. How's your end of one experiment with your GLP-1? How are you doing? I wanted to, I asked that question about the money because that was one of the conversations I had with my nephrologist. I was on another pill for my diabetes and we decided because my, my diabetes is, is pretty well controlled that by taking me off of one expensive drug, putting me on the GLP-1, that I'm going to be using less insulin, which... I fully believe that's what's going to happen. Uh, so actually, the cost for me was almost exactly what I was doing previously with much better outcomes on the GLP-1. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And it, yeah, they're expensive, but in the long run, um, I'm preserving myself from having to take other medications if my, my heart gets bad or, or whatever. So it's kind of a balancing act that I've created for myself, but I think it's going to work. Well, you know what, Jane, I think you made another really important point. Insulin has gotten so expensive that, to be honest with you, it's pretty much a level playing field with the GLP-1s on cost. So that's an important, like for the patients who are listening, that's a really important practical point, especially if you can replace your GLP-1 
one. I mean, you can replace the insulin with your GLP one. And, and just in the spirit of full disclosure, I was the principal investigator of the award seven trial, which was for people with moderate to severe CKD who got a GLP one for glucose lowering. And then, you know, we were the ones who reported the really remarkable kidney outcome benefits, but back to the glucose lowering, you know, about half the patients got to where they didn't even have to take supplemental insulin before meals. Um, and then the, the, we used dulaglutide in that trial and dulaglutide replaced their long acting insulin and was much, was equally effective to insulin glargine, which is a commonly used long acting insulin. But the risk of hypoglycemia was down 50%. Ooh, well, that's really big. Yeah. Well, especially in advanced CKD where hypoglycemia is one of the major risks of insulin, especially because the kidneys clear insulin and so our patients with advanced CKD are more susceptible to hypoglycemia. So not only did we get very effective glucose lowering from a, glu from a glycemic control standpoint, it was also quite a bit safer because we really, we got the A1Cs down to goal, but we did it with a 50% lower rate of hypoglycemia. And one of the other reasons why I'm particularly taking this drug is I have gone through the, the transplant evaluation process and I'm a person of size, so I didn't qualify immediately for transplant because my BMI is so high. And part of the conversation I had with the nephrologist is, well, insulin is kind of got a, a bad rap because it'll put weight on. The more you use, the more weight you're going to gain. So by getting rid of or lowering my use of any form of insulin, the other is a side effect of the drug that I am on is weight loss. And so I'm hopeful that that's going to be beneficial so that I can qualify for transplant. Okay, so that's another really critical thing that I'm glad you brought up. The GLP-1s are remarkably effective for weight loss. And like you said, in the current era, our patients with advanced CKD more commonly have obesity than malnutrition. And frankly, uh, you're right. In, in Award 7, over one year, the people on dulaglutide lost three kilos. So that's about seven pounds. Whereas the people who we intensified the insulin to get the A1C down, they gained two kilos. So the net difference was 12 pounds. And that that's substantial weight loss without, you know, any additional intervention. So, you know, as opposed to giving you medicines that make you gain weight and might prevent you from qualifying for transplant due to obesity, these drugs actually help you get to whatever the BMI goal is for your transplant program, which is another huge benefit. You're exactly right. And if the award seven results play out and flow, if it prolongs the time to needing transplant, it gives you an opportunity to get that weight off and to be ready. Well, and it's very frustrating because a lot of people their size get to a plateau where diet is just not going to do it. You, you just kind of get stuck. So I'm encouraged that this is going to, I have another 20 pounds I need to lose uh, to qualify. So I'm hoping that this is going to be the catalyst to be able to do that. Well, it's a, it's a, it's another tool in your toolkit to get there. Right. And it will buy you some time too on the way. And all the other protectors. And it is, is what I'm really, I'm really glad to have that opportunity to do that. So, Dr. Tuttle, I, I, I think this has been really interesting. I learned a lot every time I talk with you. I learned something new. Uh, I hope our listeners are enjoying this. Do you have any other uh, comments that you'd like to make? Well, thanks, Jane. And I really appreciate your perspective and 
really focusing on the patient journey because that's what it's about. And I guess a couple things I'd like to say for particularly the patients who are joining us is dialysis doesn't have to be a destination. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that term pre-dialysis CKD because even at advanced stage CKD, there's so much we can do for people now. Things that prolong kidney health. Let's just, let's not even talk about avoiding kidney failure. Let's talk about preserving health. And then to your point, we recognize that there's some people who will still progress, but the longer you can live with your own kidney function, the better. The other thing that you said that I think is implicit, but I want to call out for people is the potential opportunity for preemptive transplants. So this is why I say dialysis is not a destination because as we were just discussing, if your um, current regimen buys you time to get the weight off and more time on the list or to find a donor, you're much more likely to get transplanted than have to end up on dialysis. And I am glad that we have dialysis because there are people who for a variety of reasons, will not get a transplant. And we know there are more and more people with diabetes. So even if we reduce the rate of kidney failure by half, we will still have a lot of people treated by dialysis. So I want to acknowledge and be grateful for the dialysis technologies. But I really think that that should be plan C. And plan A is maintain kidney health as long as possible. And with the tools we have now, even preventing kidney disease to begin with, and among the people who develop kidney disease, still living well in kidney health. And then the next plan B, I would say, is preemptive transplantation. I hope, I'm praying that, that, will, that you will maintain kidney health. And if you need treatment for kidney failure, you'll have a chance to be transplanted first. And then finally, plan C is dialysis. So one of my mantras now is maintaining kidney health and dialysis is not a destination. When I first was diagnosed at stage four, because of the progression that I had had for the year before, my nephrologist told me, you better prepare for dialysis within six months. That's almost four years ago. So there are ways to, uh, and I've been very steady with my GFR and my other health conditions. So it is definitely doable. Lifestyle change, working with your health team, and just, you know, good positive attitude, um, I really think makes a big difference. And I I think that message of hope is really important for the people listening. And, and, And again, I want to acknowledge that, you know, every individual is on their own journey. And for some people, they will still progress. We aren't perfect. We haven't, we don't have a magic wand. But For many people, we can make life better. We can preserve kidney health longer. And and that allows us to provide people more options, even if they do develop kidney failure, to, whenever possible, uh, live with a functioning kidney, hopefully their own, but uh, transplant ahead of dialysis. And I realize that my comments are probably somewhat provocative uh, for some uh, nephrologists, but I'm speaking the truth. And um, I think that, you know, if our goal here is to be provisioners of health, then we really need to focus on the kinds of interventions that allow people to maintain good heart and kidney health and stay alive and, and contribute in whatever way they're contributing to this world and enjoy their lives. 
I, I agree with you completely. So if you're a patient and you're listening to this, talk to your doctor, have those conversations because it's, it's important that you get the answers that you need because there is a lot of things that are out there new that you can do the, that can preserve your kidney function and, and give you a great life. So Dr. Tuttle, I thank you again. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Hope you have a good afternoon. You too, Jane. Take care. Thank you for listening. Our volunteers are the heartbeat of NKF. We rely on them to share our vision of a world without kidney disease, to educate entire communities about the risks of kidney disease, and to advocate on Capitol Hill for legislation that will improve millions of lives. Today, we'd like to give a shout out to two of our most dedicated volunteers, Curtis Warfield and Glenda Roberts, who both contribute in many ways, but most recently lent their voice and perspective as kidney patients to the NKF and ASN Joint Task Force that focused on eliminating race from the EGFR calculation. Thank you, Curtis and Glenda. We are so grateful for your efforts on this task force and for your ongoing commitment and dedication to the kidney community. We want to hear from you. Do you have comments on this episode, suggestions on future topics or guests? Is there a kidney hero in your life that you'd like to honor? Email us at nkfpodcasts at kidney.org. Make sure to subscribe, review, and share our podcast with others. Thank you again for listening. We hope you join us next time. Until then, from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.